This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah uh, to each and every one of you. I wish you all the very best and uh, I especially wish you good health, peace, prosperity and safe travels as we all hit the highways, the interstates, uh, the airports to visit family and friends over the holiday season. Uh, we are quickly closing out on 2014 and what a tumultuous year it's been. Uh, and with that in mind, Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of a most excellent alternative news analysis service, The World Affairs Brief, is standing by to wrap up the year that was in geopolitics, political subterfuge, uh, the secret machinations of world leaders and their inexorable march towards their intended goal of a new world order. So think of the uh, the coming hour as a, uh, a backstage in the Global Theatre Year in Review. Joel Skousen. Uh, I get the most amazing mail from listeners, carefully typed information packets uh, that arrives each week via snail mail. Uh, some uh, of it uh, meticulously handwritten, some of it not so meticulous, and of course countless emails. And I do appreciate all of the mail, and I and I try my best to respond to as much as is humanly possible. But quite frankly, I cannot keep up. And I apologize to those uh, who don't receive a reply, but I do read it all. I promise you that. Uh, I have a backlog going uh, back months and months and uh, regarding uh, email. And I, uh, I wonder if I should just declare email bankruptcy and start over. Uh, but, but there is one I do want to share with you right now because I think it's very appropriate uh, giving my, uh, given my upcoming conversation with Joel Skousen about the state of the world and more specifically the United States and the end of the American empire, if you will. Uh, this email is from Donald Merker, uh, who checks in from time to time. And uh, Donald, thank you for this. Uh, he writes, of the Obama imperial dictatorship, is the documented history of all democratic republic societies from birth to death throughout history going back thousands of years repeating before our eyes? Are your eyes wide open or wide shut? Do your own search to verify the following facts and statements if they seem too outrageous to be true. The Democratic Republic of the United States of America was survived, has survived 40 years longer than any 
or than all others in recorded history. Next year's budget, $1.1 trillion, is $500 billion more than taxes and revenues expected. The rest will be borrowed or printed by the Federal Reserve from thin air. In five years, the U.S. will be paying over $1 trillion per year in interest, assuming there is still a United States. In 1887, Alexander Tyler, a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh, had this to say about the fall of the Athenian Republic some 2,000 years prior. A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse over loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. During these 200 years, these nations always progressed through the following sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, and from apathy to dependence, from dependence back into bondage. Joel Skousen is the publisher of the World Affairs Brief, a weekly news analysis service found at worldaffairsbrief.com. Mr. Skousen is a political scientist by training and speaks multiple foreign languages, which he uses in accessing information here and abroad. He specializes in helping readers understand the hidden agenda of those secretly controlled both political parties and the U.S. government. Joel Skousen, how are you? I'm just fine, Richard. It's good to be with you again. Uh, before we uh, we do sort of our, our year in review and go back and, and talk about some earlier stories we've touched on uh, this year, let's talk about the most most current edition of the World Affairs Brief, and uh, let's start with a with a biggie because it affects obviously uh, uh, us both uh, up here in Canada and down in the United States, and that is uh, oil production and OPEC refusing. Uh, to pull back on oil production. And here we have now the price of oil hovering somewhere around $63 a barrel, which is not good for our big tar sands project up in Canada. Uh, they're very worried in Alberta, and for good reason. And, and it's, not hurt, it's not helping the, uh, uh, the, the oil production uh, sector in the United States. What's going on here? Well, first of all, in the larger picture, it's important to understand that the United States government... <clears throat> and major oil corporations that were in league with government funded the environmentalists to in turn uh, produced a great hue and cry against oil exploration in America. And so the government itself withheld and purposely allowed the environmentalists to shut down oil production in America for, you know, 20 years or so while we really were forced to rely on foreign oil. I predicted years ago in the World Affairs Brief that at some point in the future, as we near a period of war, because I, I, I had hypothesized the reason for shutting down uh, oil production was to withhold U.S. domestic oil so that it would be there when they needed it during war, when external oil and foreign oil supplies would be shut down. And sure enough, they allowed you know the tar sands, the shale oil, and the fracking, all of that to occur and actually, fracking was not something that they allowed to occur. It just came up as an invention. And so, really, the oil companies jumped the gun on the government. The government still has not released uh, oil exploration in the Gulf oil 
found, find up in the Arctic, which is huge, as big as Saudi Arabia, which was shut down uh, and capped and sealed uh, under threat of punishment to Richfield Oil, who had discovered it. And, of course, the California oil fields have not been allowed to be uh, drilled as well. But the shale oil came out of nowhere. It was already, uh, you know, for the taking, the government couldn't stop that. And so that's what's really flooded production right now. It doesn't mean that the government has, you know, opened up the spigots uh, right prior to war. That will happen a little bit further down. But right now we have a combination of lowering demand and tripling of production in the United States. So the United States is nearing uh, with Russia and Saudi Arabia is the largest oil producer in the world. And we're almost self-sufficient for oil now. But what that means is, of course, that you've got a glut of oil in the market. Oil's down actually today was $61. And so uh, what this does, and a lot of people like Michael Snyder are predicting a collapse of big banks and perhaps the entire uh, economy because of commodity futures contracts and derivatives uh, that are tied to the collapsing oil price. And in the World Affairs Brief, I did uh, take issue with that. I don't think that was a good analysis because when people do futures contracts uh, for oil, uh, you know, let's suppose you know four months ago they were doing $100 uh, future oil contracts. Well, they went around and immediately sold those future contracts to the airlines and to the big refineries. So it isn't that they're suddenly sitting with a futures contract with no buyers when the price drops to 60. All of those futures contracts have been resold. And so that's why airliners, for example, are not lowering their prices because they bought oil high and they're going to have to live with that now. They're buying now futures contracts, uh, you know, at $65 a barrel, for example. And so they'll be able to lower prices in the future. But you know, the derivatives that were, uh, you know, hit on oil, there's both pros and cons. Those things get liquidated rapidly, so there isn't any major crisis looming in that regard. Where the big crisis is, though, Richard, is with the OPEC countries. Their budgets actually cannot be self-sustaining for anything less than $100 a barrel for oil, and, and for Venezuela, it's probably $135 a barrel. So those countries are really hurting. Uh, I don't believe that they refused to cut production um, because they were under the U.S. thumb to hurt Russia or Venezuela. So I just don't think, in fact, Saudi Arabia really did want to go along with that and, and cut production. But none of the other OPEC countries uh, could afford to, and that's where they're stuck. They just simply outspent themselves. They have no way to maneuver in this um, market. So what it really means is it's going to be a boon to the economy. A lot of people say a lot of oil jobs are going to be lost. Uh, this may be true in the future, but right now production is going full steam ahead in the shale and the tar sands, and I'll tell you why. It's because companies and countries have already invested in the equipment that's currently producing oil, and they don't gain anything by stop producing. Even if it's below the cost of production, it still has, ha helps to pay off the debt of what they've invested so far. What it will do in the future it will stop future drilling and future development um, and future investment in those markets until the price rises. Joel Skousen is with us, editor-publisher of World Affairs Brief, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Our World in Review 
uh, with Joel Skousen. Now, Joel, uh, the other uh, big issue, of course, uh, which is still raging in the Middle East, and but although you wouldn't know it from the mainstream news, and that is this never-ending, no-win war with ISIS. What's going on there? Well, what's really amazing is that it simply has disappeared from the news. And in fact, there isn't a lot going on there. Uh, the U.S. just did 20 strikes today, but that was up from you know, one or two maybe uh, every week. I mean, literally, there was nothing to hit. And the reason there's nothing to hit is, one, ISIS was a U.S. creation. Um, it was developed. They basically took a portion of the rebels that they were funding and said, oh, you're going to form this new organization called Islamic State, uh, and you're going to you know, train them, get up to thirty or 50,000, have these big depots, and then you're going to attack Iraq. The whole purpose of that was not to take over Iraq, but to have such an impact on the world uh, as to bring U.S. troops back to there and to be able to turn around U.S. forces and say, now we're going to have to go back and attack Syria, because that's where ISIS is from. And, but what's interesting about this, let me just backtrack, though. the reason that Syria needs to be targeted, and Iraq really isn't the target, but Syria is the target, is because Israel is not going to attack Iran until Syria is taken out of the way. And once the U.S. got into that uh, unlikely agreement for chemical weapons with Syria, due to the faux pas, the the foot and mouth of uh, John Kerry at the London press conference. We gave them that out, that they could stop the U.S. attack on Syria if they gave up their chemical weapons. The U.S. has been trying to do anything they can um, in terms of conjuring up you know, false evidence that Syria isn't going through with the chemical weapons. That failed. So they had to conjure up ISIS to get back into there. And But it isn't going well in the first place. ISIS is smart enough, obviously, knowing that they're under U.S. control. They don't get dare get out of the cities. They know the U.S. can't bomb them in the cities. So there haven't been very many targets of opportunities. Uh, but the U.S. keeps funding, and in, in the proposed funding bill before the U.S. House and Senate, you have another $500 million for the rebels. Part of that's going to ISIS because they're part of the rebels. The U.S. citizens just don't know that. But the target is Assad, and uh, that's where this is heading. But, you know, the U.S. can't outright go out and destroy ISIS because that's the whole reason for being in Syria. And so this is a no-win war, but you'll find it be, it will be moving south steadily in 2015 until Assad is taken over. It's curious that this, the Kerry has characterized this as a, uh, you know, a war that will take years and years and years to win. This is not a huge uh, army. I, I, I mean, if there were troops on the ground uh, and they were serious, the Americans, that, that is, serious about uh, engaging the enemy, uh, I would think that this is, <laughs> this is a, war, a battle that could be wrapped up pretty quickly if they were serious about it. Absolutely. And that's right. That's just not a serious war. This is a phony war on terror. Remember, there are two purposes on creating ISIS. One was to get back into Syria. The other was to create and that's why they did these staged beheadings of an American, a Brit, and a French, and uh, any country that they want to get really hyped up about this, they'll behead one of their citizens. Exactly. Jason, Joel, I've got to interject here. We're going to come up on a break. We'll come back. We'll finish up with ISIS and, and move on to other matters. Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, right here on The Conspiracy Show. And we're back with Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief. Before we continue our, our year in review, Joel, let uh, people know how they can subscribe to World Affairs Brief. 
World Affairs Brief is showcased on my website, www.worldaffairsbrief.com. And uh, there is a modest subscription for my weekly World Affairs Brief. It comes out every Friday. People can get a free sample issue by simply emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. We were talking about the, the phony war on terror and the, the creation of uh, ISIS, uh, the Islamic State in Syria and the Levant. I guess we should refer to them as ISIL now. <laughs> but uh, uh, you, you, you were talking about these staged beheadings, and, and uh, we, we talked about this earlier in the year, and I, I always believed that these were, these were staged. If this is an actual terror group intent on terrorizing uh, people, then they would have shown in these videos the actual beheading, but they were clearly staged. That's right. There wasn't the typical crowd of jihadists around as there have been in other uh, real-life beheadings where they're showing off before the camera. This was one lone person with a British accent, probably an MI6 agent. What I suspect is that these people were, in fact, rescued by British and CIA or Israeli forces. And then before sending them home, they says, you know, what we want to do is do a little video here to really give ISIS a bad name. They talked them into giving these videos, and that explains, I think it's the only thing that explains, why there was no duress, why they seemed to be very, very converted to this, which is literally impossible, the friends that knew them, and then why there was no flinching when the knife goes up to the neck. They didn't expect to be killed. They thought they were just doing a, uh, you know, a propaganda video uh, against ISIS. And then the camera stops. They end up being killed which to their surprise, obviously, and uh, the body is showing. So it's not that I don't believe they were killed. I don't believe they were killed by ISIS. Uh, where is this uh, heading? Do, do you foresee a, some sort of a, a false flag type of operation involving uh, ISIL in the United States? I do not. Um, ISIS is, um, as I said, a U.S. and British intelligence creation in order to foment the international war on terror. Remember 9-11 created a national, international support for the U.S. war against terror. But now ISIS has internationalized, and that's why the U.S. is building an international air coalition. If I think they're doing a few token sorties. The U.S. is doing 95% of all the, the air sorties. But the purpose is to get these countries used to acting together, get the American people used to expecting to have an international war body and that's a prelude to globalism, in, in my estimation. So that's where it's going. I do not believe that there will be any ISIS people allowed to come across the border and do any attacks on the United States. And the reason is, I mean, look, since before 9-11, we've had a wide-open border with Mexico. We haven't had one single normal small terrorist attack of the type that comes to the border ever. It hasn't happened. And you have to ask yourself why, if they hate us, if al-Qaeda has been out there for a dozen years hating us, and ISIS hates us and beheads us, what's stopping them from coming across the border? I'll tell you. It's because it's a controlled terrorist outfit. And if they were to come across the border and blow themselves up in a mall in Phoenix or El Paso, or blow up railroad tracks or electrical pylons, you know what the American people would demand? That that border be sealed. And that would get in the way of the administration's agenda, the globalist agenda, of uh, watering down American conservative votes with unlimited mass illegal immigration. And that's why it's not going to happen, in my opinion. Now, that said, I also don't think there's going to be another big false flag attack like 9-11, which was a government operation from beginning to end. 
Uh, and the reason I say that is because 9-11 created a massive wave of support for conspiracy theory. And uh, they made so many mistakes. It was so difficult to cover up. Uh, the hand of the government is all over the place in that operation. It's impossible for a couple of uh, wily terrorists to have done anything near what happened there. And it's just built a great deal of support for the conspiracy facts, I will say, that have uh, built an anti-government movement in the United States. Well, this is this is actually actually encouraging that uh, whatever you want to call this, uh, you know, the 9-11 truthers or, or those of us who, who don't believe in the official version, that uh, because we've sort of coalesced and we've made such a, a, a you know, a, a ruckus, that we, we've perhaps prevented a future 9-11. That's right. From the government point of view, uh, we have. Now, that hasn't stopped them from doing other things, such as uh, unlimited NSA spying and the militarization of police. And as we talk about a wrap-up of the year of 2014, I think that's the thing that we need to focus on, is that we have unlimited total domestic spying, everything from email to telephone calls, about the only thing that isn't under constant surveillance is ham radio and the mails. Now, they are photographing the covers of all mail and computerizing that. And they have some equipment they can see through one page and interpret it, even fold it. But multiple pages, they can't. Well, I mean, who uses the old uh, snail mail uh, anymore anyway? Uh, it's all... Well, those that want security do. I suppose. That's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. Uh, we're coming up... This is a short segment. We'll be coming up on a break here uh, momentarily. Uh, no, no, this is a longer one. My apologies. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, let, let's let's talk about uh, the militarization of, of the police. And, and that was certainly present uh, with the... Uh, uh, the situation, the tragic situation in in Ferguson, Missouri, the death of Michael Brown. Um, you know, obviously, the Boston massacre, the Boston, or Boston Mass- uh, marathon uh, police response was a huge militarization of police. Yes, uh, where 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 are the police uh, getting these armored personnel carriers and 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 uh, uh, heavily armed black helicopters and so forth? They don't have the budgets and for this. Automatic do- weapons, all of this stuff is coming from. Uh, a special program of the United States military, and it literally comes to them free. And so it's very difficult for police chiefs to uh, reject this stuff, even though it requires a tremendous amount of expense and training and maintenance, etc. There's just an ego trip for many of these people to have APCs and uh, huge SWAT teams outfitted. I mean, everybody's got SWAT teams, including IRS and Forest Service and uh, it's just uh, water conservation departments. I mean, the government is really literally building a police state uh, under the excuse of future unrest and domestic terrorism. The, the second part of militarization, though, is police brutality. In other words, we're getting more and more thuggishness in police. And the problem with that is we've given almost de facto immunity to police in terms of their shooting unarmed people or being rough or abusive with people. The courts are not uh, prosecuting or not uh, sanctioning them. Uh, Police chiefs are uh, not investigating it. They're covering up. And prosecutors are not prosecuting. And so unless you have a videotape or an audio tape that goes viral, Nobody's going to do anything against police brutality. Well, we, we, had, we had that videotape that went viral in the, uh, the Eric Garner chokehold case in New York. Well, let me get your thoughts 
uh, on that? Was I mean, Eric Garner's widow has uh, has even said this was not about race. Uh, you know, this was just about you know cops trying to be macho, I guess, and 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 uh, I would say thuggish. They're thuggish, right? Thugs. That's right. right. Would you concur so that this is this this, this yeah, was not about race? Absolutely, it wasn't about race at all. Although. There are policemen who feel totally justified in just disrespecting those people of color. I mean, for example, in 2013, we have this video of uh, uh, Officer Wilson in the Ferguson case, uh, bad-mouthing a black who was filming him as he came onto his property, which is his right to do so. Yes. He said, I'm going to put your black ass in jail if you don't stop filming him. And then he proceeded to arrest him. Totally illegal arrest. Nothing happened to the policeman. He was not, and the you know, the owner would probably, you know, uh, you know, tried to file suit, or if he. But the point is, the policeman showed that he had this disrespectful attitude. So I suspect that when he approached Brown on the street, you know, it wasn't "Would you please walk on the sidewalk?" You know, you're inhibiting traffic. It was "Get your black ass onto the sidewalk." And so Brown, of course, uh, throws a punch at him and connects, and then the rest is uh, is history, except for the fact that you know. Uh, in the altercation, and Brown gets shot in the thumb and then backs off and, and gets quite a distance away, and the officer pursues him and shoots 11 shots at him. And that's just not justified. And and in the, the Eric Garner case, uh, you know, whether it was a chokehold, whether it wasn't a chokehold, obviously... No, it Garner, had to be a chokehold. Yes. I mean, you don't die from suffocation without a chokehold. But the point is, a chokehold is so much more preventable to death, that is, it's so much more preventable because you've got the guy in your hand, you can hear his breathing, you can hear him stop breathing, you can hear him struggle, you can hear him stop struggling. And it's time to stop that so that you don't kill him. And he killed him. This was a blatant case of murder, straight up and down, and it proves that the grand jury system is totally flawed in the United States. The prosecutor simply uh, did not want the policeman uh, prosecuted and he got off, and so I think the protests are very, very justified. And uh, and and going forward, the future of uh, well, how do you think race relations will will play out in twenty fifteen? Well, frankly, I don't think race relations are the issue. I think there is within certain racial sectors, and you know, make some racist uh, sounding statements here, but uh, real demographics, real studies will show that eighty percent of police encounters are with blacks and Latinos. And it's not that they're racial profiling, except that the, there is a, a high degree of problems among uh, the poor blacks and poor Latinos or gang blacks and gang Latinos in high-density urban areas. And so the 80% figure of police encounters with blacks and Latinos is not going away, whether you take away profiling or not. But in fact, it's a legitimate exercise in judgment to when you're a policeman walking the beat to be suspicious when you get into a neighborhood where there's a high degree of crime and gang activity. Uh, so that's not going away, but race really isn't the issue. It's the fact that certain races do have a predominance uh, because of welfareism in the black community and because of criminal behavior in the Latino community. This stems from the illegal alien status, the coyotes and the uh, shakedown uh, culture that exists in immigrants, illegal immigrants that come across the border. That shakedown culture leads to criminal activity and gangs. 
How do you respond to uh, uh, critics of, of President Obama who, who say that he is, in fact, fanned the flames uh, of, of racism by appearing to take sides? Well, yes, there is some, uh, you know, some truth to that. Uh, I think that criminal elements will use race as an excuse, but I don't think, frankly, that, uh, I mean, race relations have made vast improvements since the civil rights days, even in the South. I mean, it was just so endemic in the South. Uh, when you look at the sports uh, figures who tried to break the color barrier and the literal, uh, you know, booing and spitting and throwing things at them and accosting them on the floor from white, uh, you know, fans in the stands versus a lone black player in a college like Vanderbilt who went to... Uh, you know, down to Mississippi to play. I mean, this is just unconscionable and does not happen today. So race relations have vastly improved. Uh, what we are now seeing really are criminal elements uh, with the racial background, but they're criminal elements who are looting and who are uh, inflaming. Uh, now, that said, there are legitimate protests against police brutality, and those ought to continue. But the looting is a criminal factor and has nothing to do they're just taking advantage of the unrest. Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. And uh, let's, we'll be coming up at a break here in about a minute, but let's start this conversation. And, and, and here we have uh, more disturbing revelations about CIA torture and torture flights. Uh, and one of the most, uh, I don't know how to describe it, it's just, it's it's horrible. This The idea that maybe tw- as many as 20% of those detained were wrongfully held. Uh, tell us uh, a little bit more about these uh, these revelations about CIA torture, and then we'll uh, we'll pick it up on the other side as well. Well, the torture was very very specific. It's far worse than waterboarding. Waterboarding. It was actually threatening uh, their family with agents going and killing and raping their women and other things. I mean, the Americans have no business. Making that. I mean, China is just having a field day saying, how dare you criticize us for human right abuses when you've got this to your record. So the U.S. has lost now complete moral authority in the world. It's bogus that there are you know, threats against Americans as the reason, you know, uh, saying that that's the reason it should not be revealed. What this does is give the knee-jerk Republicans, uh, and I'm talking about phony conservatives, Republicans in name only, who are really globalists, gives them a chance to come out of the woodwork and defend this kind of torture, saying that it was very effective to defend this all under the aegis of the war on terror, just like the American conservative, the phony conservatives are defending NSA spying. Okay, I've got to jump in here, Joe. We'll we'll take a time out, come back and continue to talk about uh, revelations about CIA torture right here on The Conspiracy Show. We're back with Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief. And uh, before the break, uh, Joel, we were talking about uh, CIA torture and these recent revelations. Uh, you were talking. First of, all, yeah. Yeah. First of all, I want to make it clear that these torture revelations are said in the past tense. The Democrats, this is a one sided report. The Democrats are taking advantage of the fact that they lost the election and trying to get back at the Republicans. That's fine. But uh, what they don't tell is that. This has not stopped. It's still ongoing. There are still black sites. It never did stop. And so it's ongoing in Barack Obama under the Democrats as well. And the people in the intelligence community know that. Everyone's being silent about that. Michael Hayden, uh, Dick Cheney have all come out to explain that 
uh, and give justification for this. But the Democratic, you know, staff of the Senate really did put together a very detailed report, and they have CIA documents, uh, even though most of them blacked out. There's enough that's been revealed that is just utterly damning. The CIA rebuttal, for example, was as phony as the $3 bill. They went and talked about uh, named situations where torture really produced results. But as the Democratic staffer said, when you t- they did the same thing before in the investigations, and they went to the actual paperwork to see if any of those statements in public were justified, and they were not. And I'll bet you when they go through take the CIA rebuttal and look for actual evidence to back it up, it won't be there either. It's just a propaganda stunt. But if if this war on terror is largely phony, and I I subscribe to that, who are they torturing and why? Well, they are torturing uh, a lot of uh, jihadists, and a lot of them... uh, you know, they're building a war on terror. They have been building it for years with al-Qaeda, and they get names and indications from people of who are uh, people that they can turn to run the war on terror. They also do it to build hatred against the United States. That's one of the major purposes for intervention around the world, is to build the U.S. as the bully of the world. And so they've got to incense the world, and they're doing that by torture. But believe me, you know, probably less than half of the people in Guantanamo were guilty of any significant uh, uh, crimes against the United States. And yet they were kept there, even after, even as the United States has admitted now in this document, that they knew that they had nothing on them and they still kept them there. And part of the reason they say is so that they wouldn't uh, let them loose to tell what was happening to them at Guantanamo, because there was torture going on. And the second thing was to continue to twist the knife in the gut of the Arab world or the Muslim world so that they would continue to hate the United States. But this hatred of the United States, you might say, well, what's going on here? Why would the U.S. want the world to hate them? Because remember, they're trying to build a movement to justify Russia and China attacking the West, taking down the U.S. military. That's how our government comes out of their bunkers when this war begins and says, now our military's been devastated. The only way we can survive and prosecute this grand patriotic World War III is to join in a global militarized army. And that's how we'll get into a global new world order, and that's how we're going to lose our liberty. That's going to happen till the, till the next decade, however, because Russia and China aren't ready. Speaking of Russia, and again, uh, we're coming up on a break, and we'll pick this up on the uh, the other side, and an interesting piece in uh, the latest edition of World Affairs Brief, and that is about uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, the supposed strongman of Russia, although in the article, uh, it's suggested, highly suggested, that Putin is not running the show in Russia. He's simply uh, sort of the face uh, of a, uh, a group of oligarchs who are really running the show. What's the situation in Russia? Is Putin really in charge? Well, no, there is no country who's run by a single strong man. The days of Khrushchev or Stalin or Hitler are over. They are run by oligarchs. Putin is their front man, and I think it's important to understand that. Now, Andrei uh, Ilarionov uh, in the Journal of Democracy wrote a piece uh, basically calling the real leaders behind Putin as the Siloviki, which basically it's a conglomeration of all the dark side operators, KGB, FSU, GRU, all of these federal secret service and other people in Russia 
that really call the shots. He's actually making the same mistake that Rodney Stitch made, who wrote that phenomenal book, Defrauding America, listing all of the whistleblowers in the CIA, DEA, FBI, and, I, and CIA who had blown the whistle on U.S. illegal acts in, in black operations and came to the erroneous conclusion there was a CIA coup and the CIA is controlling our government. And he's wrong. What he's really observing was the enforcement, the dark side enforcement, but there's a globalist leadership far above government that controls both parties, that controls the dark side of the CIA, the dark side of the FBI. And that's the same way in Russia. They used to be called the nomenklatura, and now he's calling them the Siloviki, but I think the nomenklatura still exists. There was a coup, however, when Putin took down Berezovsky. Boris Berezovsky was the head of the oligarchs, which were the old communist guard who came out of hiding, made themselves wealthy in the phony fall of the Soviet Union by bequeathing themselves the, the media empire, the oil empire, the gold empire, etc. But there was a palace coup. Uh, Putin... Uh, Whoever's behind Putin had Boris Berezovsky killed and okay. Zinsky and that, yeah. uh, Sorry, got to jump in here. We'll take another time out, come back and uh, continue our conversation. A year in review with Joel Skousen, editor, publisher, World Affairs Brief. We are back with Joel Skousen. Uh, before we continue with uh, the discussion regarding uh, Vladimir Putin and who's really running Russia, uh, tell us one more time how we can subscribe to World Affairs Brief, Joel. World Affairs Brief can be viewed on my website, worldaffairsbrief.com. And uh, people can get a free sample issue by eating, emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. I also have another website at joelskousen.com. Skousen is S-K-O-U-S-E-N, where I publish all of my other books on preparedness and other things, because I sincerely believe that we've really kind of lost our liberty, even though it isn't uh, fully dawned upon people this i don't think we're going to be able to beat this powerful conspiracy they are going to bring war upon us and i think we need to prepare so i have a lot of my preparedness books and recommendations on joelskousen.com all right uh, before the break we were talking about who's really in charge in russia and you're saying that uh, that uh, putin uh, appears to be sort of running the show but he's really representing or answering to uh, a group of uh, uh, oligarchs uh, so it's you know sort of the same group, I guess, in, in, that's been running Russia, uh, although you're saying there was a, a palace coup and Putin got rid of one of the oligarchs. But No, I mean, it really isn't the same. No, it's not I the same. there's been a massive replacement. Uh, we've got to remember that this, you know, happened in, uh, in the late 90s, I'm sorry, the late 80, 80 89, and then in the early 90s, this... Uh, these oligarchs took over, and they got old, fat, dumb, and happy, and a lot of new oligarchs were brought in, came up, and I think there was a palace coup, because almost all of the old guard oligarchs are gone and, and been replaced with young ones. Uh, but ideologically, aren't they the same? Yes, absolutely. They're still communists. That's what I'm trying to say. The, the, the Soviet Union didn't, uh, the, communism did not fall. It went underground. The real communist leaders behind the scene came out of the woodwork, became oligarchs. And a lot of those oligarchs now are basically taking a back seat and out of the limelight, Putin is the head. One of the proofs of this, for example, you know, Putin always claimed to be the enemy of Boris Berezovsky, and that's how he 
became popular. We've got to stop these oligarchs. But Putin met, according to Spanish intelligence, Putin met with Boris Berezovsky five times at his Spanish villa the year Putin ascended to the presidency. It doesn't sound to me like Boris Berezovsky was his enemy. But at some point, uh, the new boys on the block, the new rich and wealthy communist leaders, decided to get rid of uh, Boris uh, Berezovsky and Brzezinski and, and some of the older oligarchs. And so now you have, you know, uh, Abramovich and, and others that are really close to uh, Putin that I think are... Uh, and there are others got to be others behind uh, running the show. Sure. What, what are some of the other key uh, uh, spots geopolitically to look for in, in 2015? Well, the Middle East is probably going to continue to erupt. Uh, as uh, I think uh, this next year is scheduled for the takedown of Assad. When that happens, you're going to find this feigned treaty or uh, making proposal by the U.S. with Iran fall apart. It already has fallen apart. They've extended it till 2015, June. Uh, but I don't think we're ever going to see a treaty allowing Iran to go ahead with nuclear power. I think it's going to stay in abeyance until Assad is taken down, and then you're going to see an Israeli uh, whip up the propaganda again, justify a, a military strike on Iran, and I think we're going to see as early as 2015, perhaps into 16, a full-blown Middle East war that will not, I repeat, not erupt into World War III. I think it's going to stay contained there. Hezbollah and Iran will fight against Israel. The U.S. will come in. And Iran's going to go against Saudi Arabia as well, who has really been beefing up its armaments, its missiles, uh, in order to... Uh, fight it out with Iran. So there's going to be a major war in the Middle East. I don't expect the war, uh, the, the nuclear war with the West from Russia and China safe to happen until sometime in the next decade. And I think that North Korea will be the trigger event. Has to be something to explain why North Korea, the worst regime in the world with the most, with nuclear weapons and missiles to deliver, is treated with kid gloves, whereas Iran is treated as a pariah. That's an excellent point. Why? I, I always uh, imagine North Korea as sort of the, the yappy lapdog, um, you know, of China. Uh, they use yeah. it, to, you know, to stir up trouble. But as you say, you know, if, if, uh, if the West was serious about uh, coming down on a, uh, on a tyrannical, despotic regime, human rights abuses... Nuclear, nuclear. Powered exactly. Why do they not do anything about North Korea? That's right. And yet, Iran, everybody knows, is on the chopping block. And the reason is, our globalists, remember, they want this war as much as Russia and China does, because they plan to win it. They plan to drive Americans into a new world order because of the war. And the globalists know that North Korea is going to be China's trigger event. It's a perfect trigger event. You've got two million troops on the North Korean side of the border. You got 20,000 artillery tubes that could level Seoul in two days. They're only 60 miles away from Seoul. If two million troops come across that border, the U.S. is going to have to use tactical nukes to stop them, and that will give China and Russia the excuse they need to attack Western military forces. So I'm saying if you see a real, live, full-blown North Korean attack of South Korea, you may have nuclear war within a week, and uh, you can take that to the bank. 
what about uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Ebola? Uh, I mean, it, it continues to rage in places like Sierra Leone, although it seems to be under somewhat uh, control in places like Nigeria and, and uh, Liberia. But in Sierra Leone, it's still out of control. We've got something like, uh, I believe, 7,000, 8,000 dead. Uh, what do you see uh, for Ebola in 2015? Well, in, in fact, it isn't uh, increasing anywhere near the numbers that it was before. It is relatively stable now in terms of containment. I don't think it's going to evolve into a major plague. It's too difficult to transmit. Uh, and that said, that's why it's so egregious. The United States is sending some uh, $5 billion to fight Ebola without telling anyone where that money's going. I'll tell you, it's not going to fight Ebola. That $5 billion is going to be a slush fund for other intervention in Africa. Africa's unstable, never will be stable. Uh, you're going to see Angola uh, right now is under pressure from Red China trying to take over uh, oil aspects there. There's an awful lot of uh, mineral wealth up for grabs. In, uh, we're going to see continual uh, fighting in there on a smaller scale, but I don't think anything major like the Middle East. Ebola... Uh, basically has been has run uh, its course people have learned how to how to quarantine in those areas what the media isn't telling people is that this most likely began from the u.s weapons labs in africa releasing it into the black population so that they can get back blood samples from those as their immune system interacts with ebola will eventually mutate into something that's more of an airborne variety. It's a little less lethal when it becomes airborne, but nevertheless, it's a much better bioweapon once it gets to be airborne. And they get that point, then they develop a vaccine to protect the elite, and then it becomes a viable bioweapon. Bioweapons without a vaccine for the elite uh, don't fly with the globalists. So you're saying that they deliberately infected uh, black populations in sub-Saharan Africa so that they could go, go back in, collect the, the, the antibodies, I guess, and develop a more uh, virulent strain at some point? Well, it's that as the immune system interacts with victims, it creates mutant forms of Ebola itself. It's not the antibodies. It's the Ebola virus itself that comes back in the samples from the dead people, and that's what they want to extract. At least that's the major mapping plan of all biowarfare is infect before, get mutant strains, and that's how you you accelerate. You know, they, they've been working ever since nine years ago. It's been documented that they've had Ebola there in those weapons labs in Africa, and the only way that got out is because it had to be uh, released uh, in some way. But that's the typical way that you accelerate a mutation scheme. Instead of using laboratory rats, you get thousands of people infected, and you're going to get a much faster chance of a mutant form that will be useful. And so that's what is suspected uh, behind this. I mean, we know that uh, vaccinations and other national health causes have been used to infect people, as the Philippine women who had an abortion put in a tetanus shot there. It was given to them by Red Cross and UN people, caused a major stir over a decade ago. You know, we gave, uh, through blood transfusions, uh, hemophilia to many black prisoners in, in the South. This government really doesn't have any principles about using humans as guinea pigs. I include American military, such as in the Gulf War vaccinations that uh, had a great deal of immune system damage causing the Gulf War syndrome. This is the kind of government we're dealing with. 
And we're not going to change that or you're not going to change that at the ballot box. It doesn't matter who's offered up, uh, I guess, for election for president. Is that is that a fair assessment? No, absolutely. That's why I say, you know, when they control all the law enforcement, most of the judges, about three-quarters of Congress, the game is over. Uh, you know, they still fear the people because if it became widely, you know, and that's why I applaud, you know, having a conspiracy show, Richard, people need to know that the only real way to stop this is to alert as many millions as we can about the nature and degree to which conspiracy controls this country and Canada as well. A lot of Canadians think, you know, we can stand over there on the border and and uh, turn up our noses at all the problems in the U.S., but their government leaders in Canada are absolute yes-men to the same globalists we have in America. They control much of Canada. So we're all in this together, Richard. And so who are the likely uh, pre-approved, sanitized presidential candidates? Is it going to be Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton? Well, I think Hillary Clinton's got a lock on things. um, But I don't think the establishment wants Hillary elected. There is a massive backlash against Obama and against Democrats. And the best way to quell that backlash is to give them a phony Republican conservative. And, uh, you know, they already have tried or showed their signals that they want Chris Christie as their number one choice. He's a Democrat in Republican clothing, got a lot of skeletons in his closet, has a lot of foot and mouth disease, as he showed in the, in the bridge scandal. But they're still not through trying to promote him. Um, that failing, and I think it will fail, uh, they have about five or six uh, candidates in the wing, and they'll drum up several more. I think we're going to see a repeat of 2008, where you have fall, uh, phony push-polling, as we call it. Remember how they would bring up one candidate after another to pit against Romney to try to knock him off, and they would surge them to 40% of Republicans suddenly think that, you know, Sam Torum is ahead. 40% now think that uh, Kane is, is there, and they would keep throwing different people. Of course, once the primary came, and it became obvious they didn't have that kind of support, that it was phony polling, then they would pick another. They even searched Santorum twice in a desperate move to try to get rid of, uh, of um, Mitt Romney. Now, I think the one to beat is the Tea Party favorite, Rand Paul, in, uh, who's going to be running for president as a Republican. And uh, so that's where the real battle is going to be, putting up... Uh, uh, you know, push polling and phony polling to support someone, a globalist, could be Marco Rubio, could be Jeb Bush. Although these revelations on torture have really tainted the Bush name and make it, it'll complicate his bid for the presidency. Well, but there's people three have, or four others. People have a short memory. You would have thought Prescott Bush would forever have tainted the Bush name, and apparently yeah, he did not. Yeah. Joel, always a pleasure. Thank you for this, and the uh, uh, best for the holiday season. And. Um, uh, I hope for great health and, and peace and prosperity for you and yours in 2015. Thank you. Feel the same for you, Richard. Uh, and once again, the website for World Affairs Brief, especially if you'd like to uh, subscribe, and it's well worth it, uh, is www.worldaffairsbrief.com. Uh, my name is Richard Serrett. You can say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And uh, also, uh, the website is uh, richardserrett.com. As always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. And as 2014 rapidly fades into history, I just want to say thank you to all of you for your support, your loyalty, your interest, and your passion. And of course, to you and yours from me and the mighty Aphrodite and the twins, our very warmest wishes for a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah. This has been an exciting year for The Conspiracy Show, both on on radio and television. The television show, Season 3, successfully aired across Canada on Vision TV, and special thanks to my partner Jalal Murray and the whole Murray family and Film One uh, for making the TV program happen. I'm I'm very proud of it. And Jalal, we've faced a lot of adversity and logged a lot of miles, ate in too many Denny's and slept in a few dodgy hotels along the way, but it was great fun. And I can't wait to get out on the road uh, with you again and film more interviews for Season 4. A special thanks also to Joan Jenkinson and, of course, executive producer Moses Neimer for your support. And, uh, well, your vision. (laughs) Uh, The TV show also has made major inroads in terms of international sales. It's now available in the United States in well over 200 markets and growing. And the show is now available in Europe, parts of Africa, and we recently sold the show in Australia. So onwards and upwards. Uh, The radio side of uh, things, the radio program, The Conspiracy Show, uh, I want to say thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for uh, technical production. Uh, 2014 also saw the addition of a new member to our team, Albert Vinzel is my new story producer, and he also runs our HOAs, our Google Hangouts on air. We do from time to time. And Albert is uh, spearheading the development of a new conspiracy show app uh, for iPhone and uh, Android devices. So hopefully we'll uh, get that uh, launched sometime early in 2015. And, of course, we continue to add new affiliates in the United States. We're now in about 30 markets. Uh, So special thanks to Chris Whitting, and his wonderful team at Syndication Networks out of Chicago. They are so loyal and so supportive, I can't begin to tell you. Uh, Our resident paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, is standing by for our final paranormal news roundup of 2014. Some truly fascinating stories in the news of a paranormal nature. Uh, A paranormal investigator who visited a haunted location in southern Iowa which was the scene of a grisly axe murder in the early 20th century, ended up stabbing himself in the chest during the investigation for some inexplicable reason, and we'll try to get to the bottom of that, Uh, plus a possible Bigfoot sighting in merry old England, of all places. Uh, Another case of a child recalling a past life, this one uh, reportedly the past life of a U.S. Marine killed in 1983, Uh, and we'll talk about the presence of something called angel hair, at a, a, a recent UFO sighting in Portugal. Rosemary Ellen Guiley at the bottom of the hour. Uh, first of all, uh, last month at my Follow the Truth conference in Oshawa, I met a gentleman, uh, an inventor, who handed me a booklet he's published. Uh, it's about a super carburetor, uh, the history of its development, and newspaper articles about others who have created the same super fuel injection system. And I, I read the booklet, Uh, which is called 100 Miles to the Gallon Super Fuel Injection System. Let me repeat that, because you heard me correctly. (laughs) 100 Miles to the Gallon Super Fuel Injection System. Uh, And he says he successfully designed and built such a system, and he wants the world to know such devices can be created. Uh, Now, here's the thing. Not only, he says, can we dramatically increase fuel efficiency... 
but the fuel these engines burn is virtually pollution-free. No emissions or no uh, toxic emissions. Uh, there's only one problem, and you can probably guess what that is. Uh, big oil uh, and the, uh, the corrupt politicians that do their bidding, he says, uh, are doing everything in their power to prevent such technology from being mass-produced uh, and uh, preventing it from coming to market. So let's talk about the 100 mile per gallon super fuel injection system. Bruce McBurney, how are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. I'm doing excellent, Richard. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. I'm just sorting through this material, reams and reams of material that, that you sent me, and I'm looking at some headlines from some old newspapers. The El Paso Times, dated 1977, 200 miles on two gallons of gas. Uh, then there, there's another uh, headline here from the Desert News staff, uh, the, the Desert News, a pollution-free device powered by amazing fuel, uh, inventors say. Uh, another one here, experts probe ogle fuel system, ogle fuel system, no hoax. Uh, what's this all about, Bruce? What are we talking about, this super high mileage uh, fuel injection system? Well, I'm hearing these things all my life, and when I was a kid, I heard about this uh, guy in El Paso, Texas, and that kind of spurred me on. Um, basically, there's been many stories of inventors coming out with devices, and they would call them vapor carburetors, and they would get like five times the gas mileage. The guy in Texas was driving a 351 cubic inch Ford Galaxy. And I have 47 different newspaper articles just on him alone. Basically, what they were doing is they weren't just vaporizing the gasoline. I found and actually proved at the university that they were cracking gasoline into natural gas and methanol. And uh, this is why they would get five times the gas mileage pollution-free, because now they were burning two of the cleanest fuels going, natural gas and methanol. When you say they're cracking it, you mean the molecules uh, or the, the atoms of... Well, no, not the atoms, the molecules. The molecules. They're yeah. cracking it yeah, and creating... It's like putting an onboard oil refinery on your car where you're taking that gasoline and refining it down into its finest form, natural gas. Uh, natural gas, propane, gasoline, diesel, they're all the same. They're hydrocarbons. And just depends on how long the chain is, depends on what it is. If it's a singular carbon, C1H4, that's natural gas. If it's three carbons, it's propane. If it's six through 12, that's gasoline. 12 through 20 is uh, diesel fuel. And you know that long, stringy grease that they use in the wheel bearings? Well, that can be several hundred carbon molecules joined together in a nice long chain. That's what gives it the string effect. So the idea here is, is uh, to burn to uh, to burn or to heat the gasoline up so that it vaporizes? How does this work exactly? Well, actually, the original things, and if you look at most of the patents, what they said it was a vaporizing carburetor, like uh, boiling or atomizing the gasoline, because gasoline does not burn in a liquid state. If you had a half a can of gasoline and you threw a match at it, it would only be the vapors on the top that burn. The liquid doesn't burn. So they were saying if they pre-vaporized it, they would basically uh, get this better mileage. But I actually did that, and I found, well, even if you pre-vaporize it, it still will have the same boiling point, and when you compress it, it reliquifies. But when you crack it, you change the molecular structure into a lower boiling point fuel that will not reliquify. Like with natural gas, it takes a 1,000 pounds of pressure to reliquify it where 200 pounds in a cylinder isn't enough to reliquify, so when your spark fires, the gas explodes, 
and you go all his mileage. Hundred miles to the gallon. Now, have you have you recreated one of these? Uh, yes, actually, I had a '76 Dodge Maxi van, 360 cubic inch V8, getting between 70 and 80 miles per gallon according to the mileage computer. But it was like the Wright Brothers airplane. It proved the principle, but a dangerous piece of crap. And I have no suicidal tendencies, so what I did, I, you know, I just couldn't get it to go any further. It's like people say, oh, you can do this, build me a Learjet. Well, it took a long time to get from the Wright brothers to the Learjet. Sure, sure. And so what I did with this van, because I just couldn't get it to run consistency, I got the head of the chemistry department at Brock University intrigued, showed him a bunch of books and patents, and he actually set it up. So we analyzed the gas proving I was making methane, natural gas. And when we had this done, he said, oh, this is no problem. We'll get you a $100,000 research grant. So I waited and waited. He never called me back, so I called him up. I said, Professor, what's happening with the grant? He says, oh, I'm sorry. I can't get you a nickel. It's not chemistry. It's politics. (laughs) And furthermore, I don't want to be involved in your research. I have my health and my family to be concerned with. He said that to you? Yes, sir. And at the time, I just thought somebody was sick in the family. But it wasn't until later on that I, because, like, I was very open when he says, oh, you want to keep this quiet? I says, no, we got to tell everybody. I don't worry about my patent getting stolen. If somebody steals it, at least it gets on the market. Right. And so you don't worry about becoming another Stanley Myers? Well, no, I, you know, uh, I, I'm a Christian. If they kill me, I'll wake up in heaven. <laughs> That's my attitude. Right, right. And I had a guy threaten me, and I told him that. And they can't really threaten me because I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid for what's going to happen for our children if we all have, because, you know, I mean, so as I say, if you saw somebody shooting your grandchildren in the head, you're going to get off your ass and do something. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, you know, right now with gasoline, uh, you know, just hovering above, what is it, 65, or oil, above $65 a barrel, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of fuel may be not set front and center with a lot of people. Uh, no. But you're more concerned about the, the, the pollution. Well, these people that say we don't have global warming but have no idea what a chemtrail is are just morons. Uh, you know, they've been using these chemtrails to spray stuff particulate in the atmosphere to reflect the sunshine back to slow down global warming. And they've been doing it for 10 or 15 years. And in the last 10 years, it's gotten colder, so it works. And people say, you're crazy. And I go, well, I'm crazy. So is the guy who wrote the patent in the patent office then, because there's a patent on chemtrails, and there it says right in the patent, to a reflective material to slow down global warming. Well, why, if we don't have global warming, do we got to worry about it? But we do, and they are worrying about it. They're just not letting anybody know. So this, uh, this professor that you approached, mm-hmm. this scientist, uh, he was going to offer you $100,000. That, well, that... he was going to try and, and get me right. 100000 And that quickly know. disappeared. I mean, have, yeah. uh, have, you know, with the old Stanley Meyer story, where oh, people yeah. showed up and, and, and tried to buy it from him. Ha- has anyone from Big Oil tried to buy... Your, uh, your super fuel injection system and so they could put it on a shelf somewhere. No, actually years ago when I went to the government and I was talking to the people in the Ministry of Energy and the Ministry of Natural Resources and they had me go through and talk to all these PhDs and they knew what the hell I was talking about. Then they said to me, well, what do you want to do with the technology? And I said, looked at them with strength, they're, they're crazy. I said, well, I want it on a market. I want my children to have air to breathe and I don't care if I don't make five cents. 
Well, that was the end of our conversation. I couldn't be bought. Bruce McBurney is with us, and uh, uh, we should tell people how they can get a hold of your uh, secret super high mileage report. 100 miles to the gallon, 3 liters per 100 kilometer super fuel injection system. We're heading into a break, but before we do that, Bruce, tell us how we can get a copy of this. Well, my website is HIMACresearch.com. Spell that. Him Acre Search. Him Acre Search is all the same way comes it out. Uh, HIMAC, H-I-M-A-C, and the word research.com. And uh, not only I made my book, Money Back Guarantee, for $20, I've sold over 2,600 copies and had only two refunds. I put 95% of it on the book for free. And that's where things got interesting for me. And uh, could anyone using this, I mean, is there... I mean, there, there, there are lots of articles in here, but no schematics, really. I mean, is it possible to, to build one of these super fuel injection systems based on this report? Yes, and I've had people that bought the books and had more talent and money than I did, and they got to have them built. But the one guy sent me a picture of his pickup truck doing 75 mile a gallon, but he said, this is for your eyes only. I don't want the men in black showing up at my house 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, if you were to, is this just a case of modifying an existing internal combustion engine, or do you have to... Well, it's a major refit on the fuel system, because what you're doing is basically building an onboard uh, refinery using the heat from the exhaust to help break the fuel down. It's a process called thermal catalytic cracking. I say to people, if you read my book and you don't understand, get any encyclopedia, read the section on oil refining, and all the light bulbs come on for everybody. All right, listen, we'll take a time out uh, and come back and continue to discuss the secret super high mileage report. Imagine 100 miles to the gallon, 3 liters per 100 kilometer super fuel injection system inventor Bruce McBurney with me right here in the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. And we're back with Bruce McBurney. How did you get into this, Bruce? How did you uh, start uh, researching the super fuel injection system? And, and, and um, I know that you, you, you invent a lot of uh, different uh, things, but how did you get into this area specifically? Well, I'd heard of this story from about Tom Ogle years ago. I was working electrical motor mechanic in a shop, and a guy from Scotland got his paper from back home. Well, it was in his paper. It was in the Hamilton Spec paper, but it wasn't in the Standard or the Niagara Falls paper. But... Then years later, I was out shopping with the wife, and I see this Farmer's Almanac magazine, so I'm looking through it, and there's an ad for this book, Secrets of the 200-Mile-Per-Gallon Carburetor. Well, this is a Farmer's Almanac. It's not the um, rag sheet, tabloid, you know, whatever they call them, that'll print anything. The Farmer's Almanac's been around for 100 years. I thought it had integrity. So I bought the book, and it lists, and it showed all these patents on these vapor carburetors, and I just wanted to find out the truth, so I just started building and playing with it myself. I've been fixing and playing with things since I was a kid, uh, and you know, I'm, when I was 16 years old, I did TV service calls on my own, and I've just been fixing stuff, and I just wanted to find out, so I started building things, and I thought it was just a vapor carburetor. And you ask 100 mechanics what the boiling point of gasoline is, and they don't have a clue. Well, this is to boil that gasoline. Well, they, you know, but uh, then you do all this. I did all the research trying to find out the boiling point, and that's when I started understanding the idea of breaking it down. Is it possible, rather than, than, than heating it and creating a vapor, could you not 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to Stanley Meyer's water engine, and, and uh, a number of people have tried to recreate that, but uh, I spoke to an electrician, an electrical engineer, rather, uh, down in uh, Long Island who was working on his version of Stanley Meyer's water engine, and he was essentially cracking these water molecules with a... Uh, some sort of a electronic waveform, like a, I believe he called it a square pattern or something. Yeah, it was a square wave pattern. It was a frequency hitting the resonant frequency. Right. Could like, you do it that way? No. Uh, basically, uh, mine was uh, just a fuel cracking system using the heat and, and, and taking the vaporized gasoline and water. Right. And Isn't that volatile, it. though, and dangerous? Uh, well, I, I did all mine very safely. I mean, I was running at seven pounds, but before I did it, I heated it up as hot as it would go, and I pressure tested it at 100 pounds with an air compressor. So then I was running it with seven pounds of fuel. So, you know, I mean, it was, you know, a very, quite a heavy-duty unit. I do things quite safe, but I had fire extinguishers and everything around. But, yeah, there was an element of danger, and then I realized that, you know, I, I just didn't have the brains or the financing to take it any further than what I did. I knew that it was possible, and I thought, well, if I put a book together, your mother-in-law can read and understand that eventually I, you know, would get some help. And I also knew that this had been suppressed before, so I wanted to make it a little bit of an insurance policy that, you know, the information was out there at least, you know. What, what, whatever happened to uh, this Ogle gentleman uh, that's written about in uh, um, various uh, newspapers. About a year after his run, he turned down the money from the oil companies. They said he came out of a bar and he got shot, and that didn't kill him. A couple, three months later, they found him dead in the middle of a, um, this desert, and they called it a suicide. It was a drugs and alcohol overdose. Um, he, and I actually sold one of my books to went to high school with Tom, because, you know, this guy was in El Paso, and he grew up with Tom in high school, and then years later he was on the Internet, and he found all my information. So he got a book, and we were talking, and he says, yeah, Tom was very straight. He didn't do drugs. In fact, one of the magazine articles, the, the reporter said, what do you attribute your inventing skills to? And Tom replied, the fact that I practice kung fu, and I won't even take an aspirin. Ah, this is Tom Ogle we're talking about. Yeah, Tom Ogle. The day say he died of a drug and alcohol overdose. So he was suicided. Yeah, suicided. That's a good term for it. And and you said Big Oil approached him. How much did they offer him? Uh, according to the newspaper article, it was twenty five million. Twenty, and he turned it down. Yeah. Well, I have a friend right now that's sitting in a Montana jail, and his website's Gadget Man Groove, Ron Hatton. He turned down forty million dollars last year, and they put drugs on him, and he's been in jail ever since uh, February. But he, was he was he trying to yeah, he's patent the same type of device? Well, he, he did get a patent on it. It's, it's a different thing, and it's not the 100 mile per gallon. It's just a small modification they make to the carburetor's throttle body. If you go to GadgetManGroove.com or on YouTube, he's got GadgetManGlobal is his handle, and he's got all kinds of testimonials, people that have gotten 50% and doubled their gas mileage. You know, some cars that don't work on, and some cars it works really great on. It's kind of a, it depends on your intake manifold. But, um, yeah, the guy was out there for three, four years, and he was teaching other people how to do it, and they just pulled the rug right, well, you know, rug right out from him. And he's not the first. It was another guy, and, well, he just passed away last year, the Alan Cagliano story. He had a website, Get 113 to 138. And miles per gallon. Miles per gallon. He was driving a Dodge Coronet station wagon, 
And uh, they framed him for drugs. He proved the drugs weren't his, but they got him on a weapons charge. He did 10 years in jail. Can I uh, just uh, read, there's a, um, a letter here from a chemistry professor at, the, at Brock University. Can I just... Yeah, that's the professor that I worked with. But that letter was written after the fact he was threatened, only because I kept pestered him. And the letter is very wimpy for what he knew. Okay, let me just read it here. This is from Brock University. It's on Brock University letterhead. To whom it may concern, Mr. John Bruce McBurney of Niagara Falls, Ontario, has worked alone for a number of years to design, develop, and test a novel automobile carburetor. In this carburetor, gasoline aerosol produced conventionally is converted to gasoline vapor with the, the use of heat generated in the operation of the automobile engine. The gasoline vapor is mixed with water vapor and passed through a heated iron catalyst bed for conversion into lower molecular weight hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide. The lower molecular weight hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide serve as the fuel within the automobile engine. In his test vehicle, Mr. McBurney was able at, able at will to switch from normal operation to operation of the vehicle with hydrocarbon and carbon monoxide fuel. It goes on and on and on. And then it, it says, I have helped Mr. McBurney and will continue to help him scientifically, technical, technologically, and financially because of the great benefits that his invention, if it is successful, will bring to society which is currently plagued by inefficiency and serious pollution. Signed, E.A. Cherniak, Professor of Physical Chemistry, and that's dated June 16, 1989. That's Brock University. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this was after, he, I mean, he wrote this letter, but th this was after he told you, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the health of my family. Yeah, so when he says, I'm worried about my family, I says, oh, I'm sorry, Professor, you've got to look after your family. But, you know, uh, we've done a lot of research, you know, and then I left him alone. Then I called him back months later, see how things were going and, you know, kind of getting the bums shuffle. And I said to him, well, okay, I understand you don't want to work it, but we did a lot of work. Can I get you to do a letter of, rec you know, just to say what we did? Because, we see, we, he says it should be given the opportunity. We had analyzed through gas chromatograph and ultraviolet spectrum analysis proving I was making natural gas. And when, he said, when we had both of them done, he said, this is scientific proof. You're on to something. We'll have no problem getting you a $100,000 research grant. Well, then after they threatened it, I kept calling them back. Oh, could we get just get a letter? You know, and I'm a persistent little fella. So I kept calling them back. And so he says, well, I guess I, guess I could do something. Well, the test was done in December of 87. It wasn't until June of 89 the letter was written. I didn't get the letter till the fall of 89. And in the meantime, all this time, I got screwed around by the patent office because when I filed the patent in November of 87, uh, they said, oh, you've got two years under a caveat to file your patent. Well, I, you know, I got all depressed because I couldn't get anywhere. It was hitting your wall, head against a brick wall. Right, right. So it was finally a year and a half later. I go, oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and pursue the patent. And they come back and they says, oh, sorry, we changed the law. And you only had one year. But at the time I filed it, I had two years. They changed the law. They never told me the law. And then I went up and I appealed it, drove all the way to Ottawa, appealed it. I went in with a bunch of books and a stack of patents. And the, pat the guys come in and they're looking at all my stuff. And it turns out they're the guys on the tribunal. I present my information. They go, oh, well, you've got a very solid case. We'll give you our decision in two weeks. Two weeks later, sorry, nope, can't do it. Screw you. Uh, you have the option of going and filing to the Supreme Court. 
Well, I didn't have the kind of money to right. go to the Supreme Court. Now, right. if you're a criminal, you can get all kinds of money from legal aid. But if you're a homeowner, you can't get any money without them putting a lien on your house. So where are you at with this now, Bruce? Have you pretty much given up on this? Or? Oh, no, I, I just keep saying one of these days I'm going to find people that care and I'm going to help uh, get the financing out. And I've got a lot of other people fired into this stuff. And uh, the word's getting out. People are realizing, you know, that the technology and things can change. And could they just, could I take a, I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, uh, take a brand new car and have this, this uh, adjustment made because I'd, I guess I'd probably, uh, you know, void no, the warranty. I don't want to work on a brand new one. No. I always, I would go and buy a junker and sure. play with it. Exactly. Know? I mean, could anyone buy a junker, take it to a garage, hand them your secret no. super high mileage report and have it made? No. Why not? Because most, well, that was the reason why I wrote the book. It's like I can explain to you how to build a refrigerator, but if they shot the guy who invented the refrigerator years ago and we were all using ice boxes, you'd spend thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars building that refrigerator that would break down in three months. But because it's mass-produced, you can go and buy one for five hundred bucks, and it'll run ten or fifteen years. Right. That's the idea. You need you need these to be mass produced. Otherwise, it's not economically feasible. Well, who's going to spend ten thousand dollars on a carburetor with all the prototyping and everything to save five thousand dollars worth of fuel? Right. That's what it would cost. Yeah. Well, I I, I I I don't know what it would cost in the final thing. I know when I did my van, I spent a few thousand dollars in about three months of my time, and I just had you know a piece of crap like the Wright brothers. But it did prove the point. And I didn't know now that, hey, this can be done. But I, and at the time, I thought it was a control issue. I was thinking you need a computer control, and I didn't have the technology and, or, you know, even the price for what a computer was back then. Now things are changed. You can get a PLC for 250 bucks to, you know, do something like this if you had a decent programmer. But I can't afford that. I've just basically, uh, you know, I... Is 100 miles to the gallon, is that, is that about the upper limit? Let, let's say you were to put one of these on, a, let's say, a smart car. Could you get 200 miles to the gallon? Oh, no, a smart car would basically get uh, about 350. 350 miles to the gallon. Yeah. Well, in 1936, there was a guy in Winnipeg doing 200 miles per gallon. And uh, there's an article, uh, oh, what it was, I'm trying to remember the year, 1973, I think it was, the Shell Mileage Marathon car went 369 miles per gallon in a 2,500-pound car. Oh, my. Yeah, the, 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 the mileage record is something around 8,000 miles per gallon. And I'm guessing that all of the automakers know that this is possible, and uh, they're essentially... Yeah, you well, know, they're not going to budge because by the oil companies and the drug companies and the same people and the bankers, and it's all controlled with the oil. And this, I have one CD-ROM that a fellow put together because he went through my website, and in my website there's an article called "Research for the Scholarly" that this other fellow wrote, and he couldn't get it published. Well, it was explaining the hundred mile per gallon, and it lists 569 different patented fuel saving systems. Now, many of them are bought up by the oil companies. Now, if it doesn't work, why would you patent it? On average, it takes one year's salary. It don't matter 1919 or 1969. Whatever the average one-year salary is about right. what a patent costs. Precisely. Listen, Bruce, we're, we're out of time, but we've, we've got to talk about this again very, in, in the time that remains very quickly. How do people get a copy of the Secret Super High Mileage Report? Go to my website, HiMacResearch.com, or you can call me. My phone number is 905-358-8541. 
I just take the time. I explain it to anybody that calls. I just want the truth to know. I get people fired up. They're out there telling other people. And one okay. of these days, this got to get out there. All right. Well, we'll do our part as well, and we'll have you back on. Thank you so much for this, Bruce. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, you're quite welcome. And I got a lot of other things I've learned uh, just because I shared that. Oh, that we, we will talk. <laughs> Rest assured, we will talk. Bruce All McBurney. Right. Coming up next, Rosemary Ellen Guiley in our Paranormal, Paranormal News Roundup. Richard Serrett, The Conspiracy Show. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, how are you? Doing well, Richard. I'm at my year's end break. I'm uh, out in Southern California enjoying the nice sunny uh, weather, but I'm also doing research and investigation. So, a uh, uh, little bit of business and pleasure at the same time. Well, that's good. Here's the thing, though. I want you to be careful on these uh, paranormal investigations because some pretty strange things can happen. And, and uh, of course, we're now familiar, you and I, with this case in southwestern Iowa at a place called the Axe Murder House. Uh, where a paranormal investigator ends up stabbing himself in the chest. Tell me about this story. This is uh, this is very disturbing. This is such a peculiar story, and a lot of things about it just don't add up. Now, the Velisca Axe Murder House is famous, and paranormal investigators love to go there because they almost always get some sort of evidence. It was the scene of a horrible mass killing in 1912 where a husband and wife and their children and two other children, so eight people altogether, were found uh, murdered in their beds. They had been bludgeoned to death on the heads with an axe. And a killer was never found. There were suspects. There was an inquest. No one was ever uh, charged with the crime and uh, convicted of it. So it's remained a mystery. And, of course, many paranormal investigators think that um, there's uh, at least residual energy of these poor souls who had such brutal ends. Well, this case now where a paranormal investigator... Uh, stabbed himself in the chest a little over a month ago. Robert Lorson. Um, Robert Lorson is his name. At 37 years old, mm-hmm. from Wisconsin. He was part of a small group investigating there. And um, so according to the news report, he was alone in a room in the house. The house is not that big. And uh, the other members of the group heard him cry out for help. This was about 1 o'clock on a Friday morning. And uh, they rush into the room and find him critically wounded, apparently having stabbed himself in the chest with a knife. Uh, well, first, uh, it, it was an unidentified object. Uh, I guess we have to assume it, it uh, was a knife. And he was taken to the hospital. And mysteriously, the story drops out of the news at that point. Now, this is over a month ago, so you'd think we would have some sort of follow-up on this in yes. terms of how he was faring, was he released, what happened, what's his side of the story. It just falls off the radar. So very peculiar. Now, um, it is true, and I'm, I'm going to have to speculate here, but it is true that there are some paranormal investigators who are willing to go to extremes in order to try and provoke phenomena. And this includes uh, even attempting to recreate uh, deaths in places like this. In fact, there was a show some years ago called Extreme um, Paranormal or something like that where the investigators um, even set themselves on fire, try to drown themselves, uh, to try and contact uh, the spirits of people who had died horrible deaths. And was that what this fellow was trying to do, was, was recreate uh, 
uh, a death by, um, you know, being uh, bludgeoned to death with an axe. He didn't have an axe, apparently, but um, we don't know because uh, he's not talking, nobody else is talking, and there's no follow-up to this story. That's so very I'm strange. I'm just really mystified. That's just, that's just totally bizarre, where someone would actually willingly do harm to themselves in order to perhaps, uh, you know, cause some sort of a paranormal contact or, or what have you. Have you ever crossed paths with this, with this Robert Lorison, or is he kind of an amateur? Uh, I have not, and uh, he's one of, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, paranormal uh, investigators, uh, uh, some of whom may not actu- actually be investigators, but maybe just kind of paranormal enthusiasts who like to go to places like this in the hopes of having a thrill. And uh, this it's called extreme provocation, and there are people in the field who advocate doing this to uh, varying degrees uh, in in order to try and get uh, dramatic EVPs or uh, perhaps an apparition to manifest in a video or or a photograph. It's just plain foolish. But That's what he was attempting to do. It's just plain foolish. I- irresponsible, and it gives it gives respectable uh, paranormal investigators, you know, a, a bad name because everyone gets tainted with the same brush. I mean, that's just it's it's incredibly irresponsible. Uh, here's something else I think it's irresponsible. You and I have talked about Ouija boards, and of course, Christmas uh, fast approaching, and apparently, Ouija boards are a hot item. Um, I, I can't imagine, you know, unwrapping or, or giving someone a, a Ouija board as a present under a Christmas tree. And now exorcists, surprise, surprise, are issuing warnings about Ouija boards. You know, I love stories like this, Richard, because what they wind up doing when they uh, thunder on about the Ouija board is they just drive sales up even more and, and encourage more people to use the board. Uh, and so they're... They're uh, accomplishing exactly the opposite of what they're trying to do. Exactly. But Listen, I got Sorry, I got to jump in here, Rosemary. We got a, a break uh, coming up. We'll take the time out. Come back, and we'll continue to talk about Ouija boards, Bigfoot in uh, in the UK, and angel hair and UFOs in Portugal. Back with more. My conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley as we conduct our monthly paranormal news roundup, and we were talking about exorcists warning. Uh, about giving Ouija boards for Christmas. It's a very hot item, and as you point out so correctly, that uh, that only fans the flames and encourages more people to go out and buy Ouija boards. Well, it does, and we just had this uh, movie come out at Halloween called Ouija, which was another Hollywood horror story of, uh, you know, marauding spirits uh, acting out uh, via the Ouija board. And uh, so that really drove up a lot of sales, and I think that's what this, uh, this article is the result. Um, but... Decades ago, Ouija boards were considered harmless toys, uh, and they were originally made as entertainment uh, devices. In earlier times, they weren't considered to be demonic or evil. It's only been in recent times, and especially since Hollywood has demonized uh, these devices, that uh, people think that they're automatically bad things. And it's true, however, and I've talked to many people who've had very bad experiences with the Ouija board. So it's true that people can have bad experiences, but not everybody does. So um, these uh, exorcists and religious experts who speak out against the board uh, are often uh, doing so uh, without really knowing 
much of what the board is about. It's it's uh, one-sided sensationalism, and I don't like to see that either. Uh, something else that's causing quite a sensation, uh, reports of Bigfoot in Great Britain. Um, now, I've never heard of an encounter with a, with a Bigfoot. Strange mystery cats, panthers, yes, uh, uh, werewolves, perhaps, but never Bigfoot in merry old England. What do you think about this story? Well, Bigfoot is everywhere, and there there have been sightings of Bigfoot all over the world, including England. Uh, but the evidence here in this particular story, uh, put forth by a man named Adam Bird, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. And uh, very strangely, he has not been willing to, an- or not so strangely, not been willing to answer a lot of media questions about his alleged evidence. He snapped a, a photograph. Uh, which shows a tiny little dark shape in it. And based upon the angle in the photograph and the proximity of the trees in the foreground, this is really a tiny little figure. Uh, it's not a big figure seen way in the distance. It is a small figure, and it looks like something that could be inserted onto a photograph. So the photograph itself is not real convincing. And he has uh, some very short clips of audio, which he claims are Bigfoot sounds. And uh, I don't find them to be convincing either. Um, Bigfoot has been uh, known on many occasions to uh, make knocking sounds. They're very sharp sounds. And the knocking sounds that he's got, um, well, we can't rule them out as potential Bigfoot. They're not real characteristic of the more sharp cracking sounds that these entities are alleged to make. And the other sounds just don't sound convincing at all. Bigfoot will um, make uh, kind of yelping sounds and um, horrible groaning sounds, but um, I didn't find these real convincing either. So Bigfoot in Britain, yes. Uh, Bigfoot is everywhere. Evidence at hand, not real convincing. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us. Her website, visionaryliving.com, and we're in the midst of our monthly paranormal news roundup. Uh, This is something I've only heard about recently. In in fact, at um, the conference I held uh, in in Oshawa in November, uh, Don Schmidt was on stage talking about uh, Roswell, and uh, I believe it was someone in the audience asked him about the presence of angel hair, uh, in conjunction with UFO sightings. And then I see this story. Uh, did UFOs in Portugal cause angel hair to fall from the sky? What is this angel hair? What is the connection to UFOs, Rosemary? It's a real mystery, and it's a genuine mystery. It's been going on for decades now. This phenomenon called angel hair has been reported since the 1950s, almost since you know the, the actual beginning of the UFO era. And it's uh, like white filaments that are seen literally falling out of the sky, often in conjunction with the sighting of uh, a craft or mysterious light in the sky. And uh, people have been able to capture some of these uh, strands. They're almost kind of cotton candy-like filaments. Sometimes uh, they disintegrate very easily. It's like as soon as they fall to the, to the ground or someone tries to pick them up, they uh, dissolve or evaporate, or um, people have said they've even turned into kind of jelly and then kind of evaporated. Nobody knows what they are. Now, the angel hair has also been seen without UFO sightings, uh, which would class it as more of a Fordian phenomena that is sort of something unknown that might be connected to the natural world. Nobody knows 
what this stuff is and what causes it, um, the samples that have been uh, uh, collected and that survived have been analyzed for their chemical content, and um, they contain natural elements of Earth. So is it some sort of Earth phenomenon that gets lifted up into the sky and then dropped? Do UFOs uh, create them? Do aliens create them as some sort of chemtrail? Um, interestingly, some of the more ludicrous explanations that have been put forth, uh, sort of like the old swamp gas theories, is that these are like giant spider webs that somehow get uh, you know, caught up into the air and uh, then trail back to Earth. I don't find that very plausible, no. <laughs> plausible at all. But this stuff seems to be making a comeback in sightings lately. Yeah, because I've never, uh, until someone mentioned it uh, at the conference, and in fact, they prefaced their question by saying, you don't hear about angel hair in conjunction with UFOs anymore. And uh, um, I know where I heard this. It was at the George Norrie's event here in Toronto, and someone asked Peter Davenport this question. And he said, that's a great point. No one has mentioned angel hair in a long time. But as you say, it's, it's making a comeback. And apparently some people theorize, some ufologists, that this angel hair may be a byproduct of a UFO propulsion system. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's open-ended in terms of what this is. And um, it, it certainly could be a possibility that uh, they're generated by some sort of uh, energy uh, that UFO craft uh, put out in, in our dimension. It's, you know, like a byproduct that gets spewed out. Um, but we simply don't know. And uh, it's, it's probably going to be a mystery that's going to last for a very long time. I don't think we're going to get an answer to it anytime soon. But why these things happen in waves, that's, that's another matter. And I've, I've noticed that about paranormal phenomena in general, is that things happen in waves and then uh, the phenomena seem to go away for a while, and then they come back in another wave. And that's what's happening now. Uh, there's a new uh, TV show, reality TV show, called Ghost Inside My Child. And uh, one of the episodes features a four-year-old Virginia boy who uh, is claimed to have had a past life as a Marine killed in 1983. Uh, and this is being prompted largely by his parents. Now, are they just publicity-seeking uh, individuals, or is there some merit to this a story of reincarnation, because there have been some remarkable cases of children uh, claiming to have had a past life in, in having vivid details. There's a tremendous amount of evidence for young children having uh, recalls of past lives that have then been able to be proven and uh, documented, that, that the detail they recall is historically accurate. And overall, I like that show. I don't like the fact that they call it the ghost inside of my child because it has nothing to do with ghosts. It's about um, memories of previous incarnations. So uh, the story, uh, the overall uh, idea of children having these recollections is on very sound footing. Uh, thousands and thousands of these sorts of cases have been investigated for decades. Uh, this particular story does have a few holes in it. Uh, the child seems to have some uh, very good recollections that can't be explained naturally. Uh, his parents did go looking for an explanation. They contacted the show. Uh, the show is always looking for cases. And uh, there seems to be some uncertainty as to uh, whether or not uh, the child is identifying this particular life 
or the parents did, or the show did. And according to parents, it was the show who came up with this previous personality of a Marine who died in uh, Beirut in 1983, uh, and um, that it wasn't the child himself who uh, identified himself. And uh, there were some flaws in the way they asked the child to identify photographs of uh, you know his previous self and uh, other soldiers that um, uh, were in the same disaster. So story has a few holes, but overall, um, children do have these spontaneous memories of past lives, and um, they do provide some very compelling evidence for the fact that we do have multiple incarnations. So I mean, there's certainly there were some flawed investigative techniques in this case because they were. Um, you know, sort of, I, I guess, the equivalent of leading the witness. Um, but they were trying to, I guess, based on the clues that this young boy was giving them, the producers, that is, or the showrunner uh, on, on the TV show, were trying to find a match, and they came up with this Sergeant Lewis. So, uh, I mean, what are the, some of the other possible explanations if this wasn't a past life uh, that he was remembering? Um, I mean, do you think it was just the child is, is fantasizing, or, or what, what are we to make of this? Uh, you know, it's really hard to put together a good skeptical scenario. Now, the, the boy's only four years old, so uh, he's not going to have good analysis and logic skills anyway for uh, sorting through evidence. Um, but um, w- one possibility that the, the skeptics would say is, well, he saw something on TV and um, childhood imagination, you know, got carried away. Uh, so he's just acting out some, some sort of play acting. Um, where these cases start to fall apart from a skeptical perspective is when children can remember very um, good specifics uh, that you can't find any accounting for, like addresses, uh, the names of uh, former family members and relatives, uh, especially if they're completely unknown to uh, the present family, and uh, specific details about how the previous personality uh, died. And there are, uh, as I mentioned, thousands of these cases that uh, have been investigated that have that kind of evidence. So um, it could very well be that uh, he's captured some some fragments of memories. Now, um, just because a, a child remembers something from a past life uh, doesn't mean they're going to remember all of the details. And we have many more cases on record of children and adults as well who have fragments of memories. That's true. And uh, so um, this case, I think, is, is very plausible. Uh, as as uh, we've we've mentioned, you know, some flaws in the uh, the investigation part of it, but um, the premise for the the, pot- the potential for this uh, being a reincarnated marine uh, is very plausible. Absolutely. Listen, uh, Rosemary, always appreciate your time. Uh, wishing you and yours a merry Christmas and a happy New Year, and we'll talk to you in 2015. And the same to you, Richard. Thank you so much. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Tim Spreen for technical production, Albert Vinzel uh, for uh, story producing, and to all of you for listening. Back next week with uh, Jonathan Kahn to talk about the uh, the actual date of Christ's birth, not December 25th, but we'll find out when our Lord was, in fact, born. And we'll also talk about uh, the secret 
Anti-Gravitic Technology of the Nazis with George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.